places can contain pieces of our souls. A Sandman Potvik, Part 3 of The Reasons Verse Written by Blue Sunshine and read by Literarian Chapter 9 Dream has not oft lingered his thoughts upon the curiosity of a mortal that was not mortal that was hobgadling. Over the centuries he had only partaken in musing over the experiment he and his sister had started as their awaited meetings approached, anticipating those appointments with vague amusement and curiosity at times in the long centuries between. Wondering, each century as the day neared, if this would at last be its conclusion. Alas! It had not been. And perhaps there was some sense of speculation, some sense of relief, each meeting he left with another to look forward to. There were informal rules to this experiment. One of which was that Dream did not seek out Hopgadling's storybook in the library, a whole collection of volumes now. He did not peek upon those pages to divine in the intervening years the experiment of a mortal who could not die. Those he must partake of only as Hob shared them. It was only that dreadful appointment in 1889 that he considered doing away with such informal rules as he had placed upon himself. He had meant it, in his anger, that he would prove Hobgadling's presumptions to be false. He was not so incensed as to attempt an end to the experiment. Not eager to explain to his sister why, but he had decided that he would not meet him at his next appointment, lest Hob believe... He would open the book, perhaps, in a hundred years' time, to see if Robert Gadling had, in that century, come to the determination to die. Dream had been doubtful, though, even then. He did not see himself so vital a presence as to change the man's interminable lust for life just by his absence. Perhaps, as the centuries waned on, he might return to those appointments should the point of his absence have been made. Dream wonders, had he not been captured, if his will would have remained so. Somehow, he is doubtful still. Perhaps he would have been wise enough to have realised, even without his imprisonment, that Hobgatling had been forward in his words, but not so presumptuous as Dream may have wished them to be. Jessamie had certainly had an earful to say about it. But he had been captured and... Oh, even a blind fool would have recognized his own loneliness then. Being flesh-bound had been a frightful thing, trapped in a form that wanted for sustenance and warmth, for sunlight and air, even if it did not require them. 
but it was the silence that truly wounded him. His mind and being cut and compressed into a mere fragment of himself and without dreams, without stories, his own thoughts and focus, as time crawled at a snail's pace of unyielding monotonous days and nights, grew dim and diminishing. Jessamy was his only semblance of connection, harassing the burgesses from beyond the house, rattling at windows and scrawling like a wounded donkey in the middle of the night, and singing to him at times between the persistent and loathsome parade of parties with their simpering, tittering, drunken guests and Roderick Burgess's dissatisfied verbal abuse. And then Jessamy was taken from him as brutally as they had taken everything else. And after Jessamy, who did he have? For all that Lucy Yen claimed that many of his subjects went looking for him, the reality he came back to face was that most had simply abandoned that task for more amusing pursuits if it had ever been their true purpose. And his siblings would not aid him without his asking. Not because they could not, but because they would not, not without exchange, not without altering the balance of power held between them, and that could be more treacherous a game than asking a favour of the fates. Those of them most likely to help him needed the least from him, and so what could he offer? And those least likely to aid him would be the ones willing to take as much as they could, and it was not for them. The endless are what they are, and better for the universe that they not invite trespass upon each other's dominions. He had thought time crawled by before? Every day after Jessamy's murder was an eternity. The emptiest and bleakest of eternities, his world utterly colourless, the air dank and cold beyond numbness, stiflingly heavy and reeking of rust and iron, filling his nose, coating his tongue. His being was meant to uphold the entire collective subconscious of the universe, and he was reduced to such blunt sensation and crude communication, and no desire to communicate with any of his jailers. Not the guards, which stared and leered and pitied him at best, until boredom turned pity into apathy, and even resentment that he was more than a prisoner that neither moved nor spoke. That he did not entertain. Not Paul Maguire, who expressed compassion but never acted upon it, trying to plead and coax from him what Roderick Burgess had always threatened for and demanded who visited often, and then less so, and then not at all. Not Alex Burgess, who had never seemed to lose that sulky, 
guilty air of fear, not when he too pleaded and coaxed, not when he tried to bargain, not when he resorted to pettiness and eventually to his father's same barking anger. Meaningless, all of it, from the mouth of a man who spoke such sweet promises and then forsook them the moment it was actually in his power to fulfill them. A liar. A coward. A murderer. How he ached for some spark of inspiration, for his familiar subjects, for his most beloved stories, for anything or anyone at all. He found himself in that time thinking quite often of Hopgatling recalling and yearning for his propensity to chatter, for the meandering way he told the tales of how he spent his years, for the cadence of emotion and inspiration that coloured his voice, richened every century by all the good and all the bad, and somehow, somehow still so utterly mortal. Nothing taken for granted, even after all that time. To have asserted that he felt nothing for these meetings, for the man, save the experimental curiosity he held over a bed long played between himself and death, was truly absurd. And as the year of their next appointment passed him by, he had felt more than disappointed more than grieved even. He had spun stories himself where Hopgadling waited for him, where he took his absence as forsaking his value as a companion, a friend. Oh, how bitter it stung that he had then one who would call himself such a being's friend, and this was his wretched punishment for spurning the offer. Hopgadling could no doubt only draw the conclusion that by his absence Dream was spurning the offer. In some of his stories, however, Hopgadling does not wait for him at all. Let it be a mutual disagreement, let it have been a fickle boldness on the man's part, let him not have held out a century's worth of hope only to come to such cold disappointment. He lets his stories go, and considers to himself that the Burgesses have robbed him of this, too. It is a despair that he wallows in for... He could not count, then. But hope is a hard thing to kill, and he eventually comes around to accepting the simple solution that perhaps an apology might do to settle the misunderstanding his capture and resultant absence will have left between them. He could not have, however, even in his imaginings, dreamed up Hopgadling coming then to his rescue. And yet? And yet he did just that, and now here they are, above and in an old friend build up just to wait for him, and Dream is watching him paint his vision of the dreaming. 
Rim is quite used to being an unseen observer among mortals. It is a bit different watching Hop work. He is not hidden from his friend, only unattended? Though that seems quite inadequate to say as well. Hop has pressed him to take a cup of cider and settle upon the sofa where Mincemeat has seen fit to fold herself upon his lap, watching the twitching end of the brush in Hop's hand as he blends out the light of stars in careful layers of colour. The font of endless inspiration, a starry night sky. The very first backdrop of the very first dream. The fabric from which all other dreams were woven. Dream stares at the painting as he had stared at the sky above his throne. He is not cold, not with a hot ceramic mug in his hands and a purring cat in his lap. He breathes in, and he can breathe in without that clenching, woolen fire scratching up his lungs, and he can taste the rain outside and the steam from the hot cider and the faint tang of wet paint. The sky outside is a swollen charcoal grey, but the apartment is lit warmly, Hop having turned several lamps to illuminate his canvas. His lips could so easily part and he could speak and Hop would turn with an easy smile and bright look in his eyes. Yet he stares at the painting and he yearns so fiercely it feels as if he is choking on it. Because he remembers yearning so fiercely for it, for that sky, for that essence of the endless of himself that made him what he is. Because in spite of his freedom, he still finds, at times, that the feeling of being trapped in the glass, the feeling of sitting in the bottom of that basement, surrounded by nothing but bleak grey walls and silence, torn of every aspect of himself save base form, it refuses to settle. Shit, Hop suddenly mutters, his voice presenting Dream with a seamless transition not dissimilar, perhaps, to one who finds themselves waking from sleep. Are any of these even real constellations? Dream blinks and presses his palms around the hot mug in his hands and cocks his head. Real? He questions, teasing faintly. Hop turns his head to give him the stink eye. Dream smirks. They are not the stars you would see from your world, he says. Paint them where you please. I can always make it match if the accuracy concerns you. Hop twitches and turns fully aside to give him a full-body manifestation of incredulousness. Did you just offer to rearrange the stars for me? Dream considers his words and tips his head the other way. 
perhaps. Hop points the paintbrush at him in warning. Perhaps, he scoffs and then turns back around to his work of pleasure. You are something else, buddy. Yes, Dream answers, as that is quite true. Hop grumbles indignantly, and were Dream in any other form, perhaps he'd purr in such satisfaction as the feline in his lap as well. The stars are not alone in being embellished by Hop's artistic liberties. The frost takes form in fern-like fronds and whirls and gleams resplendent in glimmers of color Dream would not have seen fit to give it, not where it crept in unwanted in the wastes where better forms of his creation should have been. Fiddler's Green's lingering absence is a malaise he cannot quite free himself from, though he searches and searches the waking world and cannot bear to attempt to recreate, to attempt to replace. Though he may have been abandoned by many, he would not so abandon his own creations. Nor would he leave them running rampant upon a world of which they did not belong, wreaking havoc no matter their best nor worst intentions. The depth and darth of the shadowed hills upon the canvas likewise have been cast into shades of splendor, not bleakly left to be barren shades of a sameness grey, but hued in transparencies from steel to coal against the horizon, as well as casts of violet and indigo, as though in a mist. And the river... Hop has banked the river in darkened silver and then shined it with sunset, racing through the dark like a blaze of inspiration. Dream thought he had found himself perplexed, perhaps even stricken, to find the painting Hop had left with Johanna, a scene which should have been heavy with the weight of a sky carried low and brought lower by snow and treacherous with a winding path over the deep, dangerous waters and a beacon only meant to call you from your cautious steps, and yet he had not found it such at all. The painting had held the calming sense of quietness, the lights of the wisps in the distance alert to intrigue, beckoning but not beguiling, the faint hints of colour under the dark water content as they were, the winding dock reaching its end not a warning of what awaited underneath, but a place to rest. Somewhere one could sit a while in the gentle kiss of falling snow just to observe what the fog-wrapped night had to offer. It was less surprising then to find the other canvas Hop now kept in his bedroom, displaying a long stretch of the shores of the dreaming with its restless mercurial waters and a hazy golden sky and a sprawling stretch of soft black sands. A place that looked warm and untouched and inviting, as though you could stand there alone and never feel lonely, 
basking on the edge of inspiration. There were some others, but of all the places he could choose to paint, of all that he could explore and be inspired by, Hobbes somehow only ever captured the dreaming itself and none of the dreams. And for this, perhaps, even such as he might feel humbled. Yet he cannot escape some uncertainty as he searches this painting for some proof, perhaps, that it is true to form. 